listening to WLPN 105.5 FM Chicago, and you're listening to Labor Express Radio, Chicago's only labor news and current affairs radio program. News for working people by working people. I'm your host, Jerry Mead Lucero, and this is the Sunday, August 14th, 2022 edition of Labor Express. On tonight's episode of Labor Express Radio, rank and file revolt in the UAW, featuring former UAW local 551 vice president and UAW members for democracy co-chair Scott Halderson. Many of our listeners are no doubt familiar with Scott. He has been on our program many times in the past. 2021 and 2022 are shaping up to be key turning points for reform at the highest levels of the U.S. labor movement. Late last year saw the victory after decades of organizing by Teamsters for a Democratic Union of a rank-and-file reform caucus in the Teamsters Union, one of the largest, most powerful unions in the country historically as well as today. The new leadership is now gearing up for what could be the labor battle of the decade, with the Teamsters contract at UPS expiring in the summer of 2023. The UAW, the United Auto Workers Union, is one of the nation's other large and powerful unions. The UAW has one of the proudest histories in all of organized labor in the United States. It was the creation of the UAW during the CIO sit-down strikes of the 30s that won American workers the relatively high wages and enviable working conditions that U.S. workers enjoyed following World War II until the erosion of those standards in the late 70s. During the 1960s, the UAW played an important leadership role in the civil rights movement. The UAW was once synonymous with labor militancy and a fighting progressive union movement. But the last several decades have witnessed the once mighty UAW become instead one of the most egregious examples of concessionary bargaining, labor management cooperation to the detriment of membership, and outright corruption in the U.S. labor movement. The issue of corruption reached what we desperately hope will turn out to be its denouement in 2020, when 12 union officials, including two former union presidents, as well as three Fiat Chrysler executives, were convicted of racketeering, embezzlement, and tax evasion, in what was largely a scheme of the U.S. automakers bribing union leadership to secure concessions from the union. One positive outcome of the federal government's corruption investigation of the union and auto company executives, similar to what happened with the Teamsters Union back in the 90s, is that the consent decree that resulted ultimately led to the UAW becoming a more democratic union with one member, one vote structure for direct election of the union's leadership going forward. This situation played a key role in making this year's UAW convention held July 25th through 28th in Detroit an historic event in which the administration caucus of the union, which had controlled and basically managed the union's previous conventions at least since the 60s, was successfully challenged for dominance by a reform caucus in the union led by a relatively new organization, Unite All Workers for Democracy, or UAWD. Our good friend Steve Zeltzer of the Labor Video Project and Workweek Radio has done an excellent job covering what happened at the UAW convention. For his July 30th radio program, Steve talked with the legendary retired UAW leader and rank-and-file activist Frank Hammer about the convention in what was a terrific hour-long interview. I considered airing an edited version of that here on Labor Express, but it's such a great and important interview that I could not see doing it justice by editing it down for time for our broadcast. Instead, I'll encourage your listeners to check out the full interview at Steve's site, which I'll link up at laborexpress.org. Instead, on Steve's August 7th episode of Workweek Radio, he talked to one of our hometown labor movement heroes, Scott Holderson, former vice president of the UAW Local 551 based in South Chicago, as well as co-chair of the UAW reform movement organization Unite All Workers for Democracy. 
Again, it's such an excellent and important interview, I've decided to devote tonight's program entirely to broadcasting nearly unedited the 45-minute interview. So without further delay, here is Steve Zeltzer of Workweek Radio talking with Chicago's own Scott Holderson about the rank-and-file revolt in the UAW. This is Steve Zeltzer with Workweek. The last week of July, the UAW, United Automobile Workers, held a constitutional convention in Detroit. And for the first time in the history of the UAW, there was actually a discussion, debate about election of uh, candidates by the rank and file. And this is an historic development. And joining us today is Scott Holderson. He's a former vice president of, of the yeah. UAW 551 in a Ford plant in Chicago. He's also a co-chair of United Auto Workers for Democracy, and he went to the convention as a delegate and was involved in organizing to fight for a democratic convention. So welcome to Workweek, Scott. Yeah, thank you for having me, Steve. There's been a fight in the UAW for democracy for many years. You face a what's called the administration caucus. What are some of the problems that members have had around this issue of the domination of this uh, administration caucus and what they're preventing the membership from trying to do? Well, you know, the the membership uh, has the ability and uh, every uh, convention, they they send in resolutions uh, about uh, the direction that they'd like to see our union go, uh, about reforms that uh, uh, they'd like to see enacted. Uh, And unless they're blessed by the administration caucus, uh, they wind up in a uh, what's called a submitted resolutions book and uh, basically are, are tabled. Uh, you have to have uh, about 15% of the delegates to agree with you to bring anything out of that, uh, out of that booklet. Uh, you know, it's basically taking it out of committee because the committee tabled all those. Uh, so to bring it out of committee uh, at this past convention, it was 136 delegates. Uh, the last time anything was taken out of committee uh, was at a bargaining convention, uh, not a constitutional convention, and it was back in 1985, I believe, 84 or 85. Uh, so it's been a very long time since anything is uh, that the rank and file uh, put forward uh, has been brought out uh, un- unless it had the blessing of the administration caucus. And the administration caucus has uh, ruled the UAW since 1947. And over the last couple of decades or several decades, uh, there have been um, a two-tier wage system set up in the UAW. You've had concession bargainings. The UAW has lost one election after another in the south of uh, auto plants, foreign auto plants that have been built in the south and in Kentucky. Um, all these issues, it seems like, are critical issues for the UAW. Oh, they absolutely are. Uh, you know, they've sown division within our union, uh, and they were sold to us as, uh, you know, save, job-saving uh, concessions, right? Uh, yet our, our membership has, has uh, you know, dropped or been flat uh, since those concessions were enacted. Uh, especially the, uh, the tiered wage and benefit structure. Uh, you know, it was first introduced in, in 1997 in the uh, agricultural implement sector of the UAW. And, and uh, you know, you called uh, the UAW uh, United Auto Workers. Uh, we are 
a very uh, diverse union. We're, we're not just auto workers, uh, also uh, folks that make parts for autos, but beyond that, uh, agricultural implements, uh, aerospace technology, uh, you know, we have Bell Helicopter and, and uh, some other plants. And now we have a very large contingent of graduate student workers, uh, both on the East and West Coast. And this issue uh, of democracy in the UAW, uh, what's your view of the kind of structural changes you want to see for democracy in the UAW? Well, we've uh, we've come a long way in the last uh, in the last year. Uh, so last fall, we had a referendum for uh, the ability to change the way we elect our international officers. Previously, it was at a convention, uh, a constitutional convention that was tightly controlled by the administration caucus. And uh, last fall, we passed the. Uh, the referendum vote to switch to a direct voting system where every member is going to get an opportunity to vote on who represents us at the uh, highest levels of our union. And, uh, you know, that potentially can be a game changer, but it's not a game changer on its own. It's going to take uh, rank and file workers coming together to uh, support candidates that are, are going to, uh, uh, you know, put their vision forward. And this last convention, what were some of the issues that did come to the floor and were debated at the convention? Well, it was pretty amazing. Uh, we were able to pull out of committee. Uh, in other words, we had the 136 votes, uh, several different issues. Uh, one, we wanted to uh, uh, put a rejection of tears into our constitution. Uh, we got that, we brought that out of committee with 100, uh, 282 uh, delegates supporting it. Uh, it ultimately failed to get put into our constitution, but there was robust debate uh, about the issue. And uh, most of the uh, delegates that spoke against putting it into our constitution were wanting to get rid of tears, uh, but just didn't want it, uh, thought the proper place was in contract uh, negotiations at our special contract or a special bargaining convention uh, next year. Uh, so, you know, we, we made sure that uh, the issue of tears was brought front and center to the uh, Constitutional Convention delegates. Uh, another issue, uh, when the rules were coming out, there had been a couple of retirees that uh, had announced their candidacy for president of the International Union, uh, both that uh, I'm aware of uh, were former staff, uh, international staff, and uh, were well-versed in, in uh, contract negotiations. Um, when the monitor uh, couldn't figure out whether our constitution allowed it or not. So he just kind of kicked the uh, question over to uh, President uh, Ray Curry, who said, oh, of course we can't have retirees running against me. So, uh, you know, that, that issue is decided uh, by a, an interpretation of the Constitution. At the convention, we actually brought it to the convention floor, trying to get retirees the right to run for International Executive Board. Uh, you have to understand that retirees actually make up more than half of our, our union right now. Uh, you know, our, our active uh, numbers uh, have fallen so far 
uh, that retired members uh, outnumber active members. Uh, but retirees have a uh, institutional knowledge of uh, the fights and the struggles for uh, the contract gains that were accomplished uh, through the decades that uh, you know some active members uh, might not remember or have not researched to find out about. And there have been some important strikes, Volvo, GM strike. What have the lessons of these strikes been? Because these workers have voted down concession contracts in some cases, and there's been uh, support for these strikes all over, not just in the United States, but internationally. Yeah, there's been a lot of uh, uh, working class support for uh, strikes. And, and last year, uh, we saw kind of an uptick in, in strike activity. Um, so, you know, take the, the Volvo contract, for instance. Uh, they voted down their, their contract by 90%. Uh, went, uh, well, actually, they were out on strike for two weeks, came back. Uh, before they knew what was in the contract, they were called back to work. And then they turned around and voted that contract down by 90%, which put them back out on strike uh, for another several weeks. Uh, then they were offered another tentative agreement, but didn't bring them back to work. Uh, just offered them the agreement and uh, waited for the ratification to decide whether they were going back to work. And they voted it down by 90% again. Uh, and, you know, the fourth time it actually turned out to be the charm for, for Volvo workers. Uh, and it wasn't so charming. They, they uh, had been worn down. Uh, by the uh, the company and the and the international union in their contract negotiations, they they did not get what they had hoped for. Now, uh, you know, if you go forward to the John Deere strike, it was a very similar situation, except that uh, after voting the contract down by ninety percent, uh, there there were contract improvements in each successive uh, offering, each successive tentative agreements. And uh, while they didn't get everything they wanted, it, the last one did pass by 60% margin. And uh, it brought back cost of living allowance, which is huge right now. As prices are soaring, uh, you know, John Deere workers are now protected from, from inflation. And uh, uh, they fought off uh, an additional tier that was uh, trying to be implemented where uh, new hires would uh, no longer have a, a defined benefit pension. Uh, so they made some uh, major improvements. Uh, there are also some uh, improvements in their piecework formula, uh, which is you know, something you really have to understand their contract to uh, know what, what those improvements are. But you know, we've heard reports from uh, dear workers about those improvements. So you know, the, there's a tale of two different uh, uh, negotiating strategies, one where you uh, just vote until you get it right, and the other where you uh, keep rejecting the contract until they get it right. Uh, so we're, we're making progress. And one of the issues that's come up is the issue, obviously, of corruption of top union officials and this labor management uh, collaboration, and also that, in fact, the uh, uh, while these uh, officials, top officials, were taking money from uh, from these joint projects or from the other things, uh, they were pushing concession contracts. What did that have to do with uh, concession bargaining? Do you think that was a uh, part of it? Well, that was a huge factor in, in concession bargaining. Uh, we've 
uh, had a paradigm shift in the UAW uh, right around the early 1980s. Uh, when we went from uh, confrontational bargaining, where you know the the union would bargain uh, uh, in the best interest of the the workers and try and get the most that they could out of the work out of the uh, company for the workers, uh, to one where uh, they were bargaining uh, cooperatively, uh, basically sitting on the same side of the table, uh, trying to uh, protect and save jobs rather than uh, and you know, offering concessions to do that, uh, but unfortunately, we've seen our uh, our membership numbers, especially in auto, uh, precipitously decline since the early 1980s. So, you know, in 1979, we had 1.5 million UAW members, uh, the vast majority of them in auto, uh, and to fast forward to today, we have under 400,000 UAW members, active workers, and, and uh, probably about one third of those are uh, in auto. And this issue of outsourcing, I know that jobs uh, at auto plants have been outsourced to uh, separate contractors. Uh, and uh, you have now uh, an effort to uh, build non-union plants uh, with electric uh, vehicle plants. Um, and that is uh, something the auto companies are, are, are doing. Was there any plan of how to fight back uh, and how to stop this outsourcing of jobs? And also uh, these uh, new electric car facilities being built uh, on substandard contracts. Yeah, that's that's a huge issue that we're gonna have to confront. And, uh, you know, is there a plan uh, you know, I'm not privy to a plan, uh, but, uh, you know, a, a lot is going to depend on the outcome of the uh, upcoming elections. Uh, so, you know, if we have somebody that has no vision, uh, that wants to continue with the cooperative arrangement that, they, that we've had with the companies, we're going to see, uh, you know, substandard contracts uh, like what we've seen before, you know, with the uh, spinoffs of... Uh, uh, Delphi and, and Visteon, uh, and those companies go bankrupt and uh, ultimately become, uh, you know, some other entity, uh, you know, like, uh, uh, you know, so get bought out by by uh, independent uh, vulture capitalists, and, and uh, you know, they, they just try and uh, squeeze every nickel out of it. Uh, we should try and bring those uh, operations back under the umbrella of the national agreements and make everybody whole and equal uh, in, the, in the eyes of the uh, union and the company once again. And I mean, you have a situation, some plants I've been told where the workers who are coming in, new workers in an auto plant are making wages comparable with McDonald's. $15 an hour, $14, $15 an hour, and they're working for in an auto UAW auto assembly plant. How does that? Fit? Yeah, that, well, let, let me start by saying there's nothing wrong with working at McDonald's. Uh, and if you're working a full-time job, you should you should get a living wage, whether it's at McDonald's or in a, a auto uh, plant. But, uh, you know, I've worked in both fast food industries and uh, and now for 33 years in the auto industry. And the pace of the assembly line in auto is considerably uh, faster than, than in the uh, fast food assembly uh, business. 
But, uh, you know, I, I will say that uh, auto uh, jobs had traditionally been uh, seen at least since, uh, you know, the 1940s as, uh, um, you know, more uh, the ability to raise a family on them uh, is, it was, uh, you know, truly a, a driver of, uh, you know, prosperity in our country. Um, so, you know, fast forward to today and you have temporary workers now that uh, are making, uh, you know, starting wages on par with, as you said, with uh, fast food workers. And uh, they also are in precarious situations where they're not protected by the just cause clause in the uh, contracts while they're on uh, their temporary status, which can be for uh, two years. So it's like being on probation for two years. Uh, when I started 33 years ago, I had a 90 day probationary period uh, at which time I became uh, you know, full seniority uh, and I had a, uh, a 18 month path to top pay. Uh, before that, it was 90 days to top pay. Uh, so, you know, we've been uh, progressively get, our contracts have been progressively getting worse uh, throughout the, the 1980s, 90s, and 2000s. And now it's time to uh, turn that around. But to turn it around, we're going to need the membership to take control of this union and demand that uh, they get the uh, representation, that demand that uh, they get the uh, contracts that are going to serve uh, them well for a, a career uh, in, uh, in the auto industry. And one of the issues that came up at the convention that your group was fighting for was the increase in strike pay. Uh, why don't you talk about what happened uh, or before the convention and then during the convention? Yeah, that was a that was a big win for our efforts. First of all, we we had over two dozen local unions uh, representing, I believe, somewhere around forty percent of the of the UAW uh, active workforce. And uh, that passed this resolution calling for an increase in strike pay to $400 per week and for the strike benefits to begin on day one of the strike rather than day eight of the strike, which is uh, what it has traditionally been. And uh, we actually had a preemptive victory on that because the uh, International Executive Board voted to increase strike pay to $400 per week. Uh, which really was a, a uh, shot in the arm for our uh, brothers and sisters on uh, strike at uh, the case New Holland plants in, in uh, Burlington, uh, Iowa, and uh, Racine, Wisconsin. Uh, so, you know, the International Executive Board saw what the membership was, was clamoring for, and they uh, preemptively uh, raised that strike pay. But at convention, we were able to pull that resolution out of committee and bring it up for a debate and a vote to uh, start strike pay on day one uh, and include that four hundred dollar uh, number. And uh, you know we we had a vigorous debate on it and ultimately it it passed. So uh, you know that was uh, you know something that has never happened in recent memory is for not only something to be brought out of committee that was shelved by the administration caucus but also to get it approved by the delegates to the, to the convention. 
So that was a huge win on both fronts. And uh, then uh, the following day, uh, one of the brothers that is on strike uh, at Case New Holland, uh, he asked for a resolution calling for $500 uh, per week strike pay. And uh, that was brought out of committee and it passed also. Uh, that was on Wednesday. And on Thursday, uh, the administration caucus had whipped their, the votes of the delegates uh, that were uh, you know, kind of under their thumb and uh, called for it to be uh, reconsidered, that vote to be reconsidered on Thursday evening. And when the vote was reconsidered, it was, uh, it was rejected for the $500 strike pay. So, uh, you know, we took $100 a, a week out of the pockets of uh, striking workers uh, just overnight. And the strike fund is what, over $800 million that you have? Yeah, it's, it's approaching $830 million. So they, what did they argue? I mean, because that's a massive strike fund. They were arguing that it was going to bankrupt the strike fund. Uh, you know, if, if uh, you know, one or more of the uh, auto companies went out on strike next year, that we were going to bankrupt the strike fund. Uh, you know, the, the problem is that they've been relying on the interest uh, and earnings from the strike fund for their general fund operations and also uh, the amount of money that. Uh, a good portion of the money that goes into the strike fund gets rebated back out, split between the local and international. Uh, so uh, if the strike fund falls below 500 million, uh, those rebates stop. And, uh, you know, that would be, uh, it, honestly, it would be devastating to the, uh, the budgets of the uh, local unions and, and certainly to the budget of the international union. But, you know, we need to figure out a mechanism to be able to, uh, you know, support striking workers and uh, use the tool, the, the strongest tool that we have in our toolbox to get contract gains. So, uh, you know, that was, you know, it, it was a false argument. Uh, that extra hundred dollars was, was not going to bankrupt the strike fund. Uh, and, uh, you know, it, it does give us stronger uh, uh, leverage at the bargaining table. You're listening to Labor Express Radio News 4, with people by working people. We need to take a brief station ID break, but when we return, the rest of Steve Zeltzer of Workweek Radio's interview with former UAW Local 551 Vice President and UAW Members for Democracy Co-Chair Scott Holderson. We'll return in just a couple of minutes, so stay tuned. You're listening to Labor Express Radio, which calls only labor news and current affairs radio program. On tonight's episode of Labor Express Radio, given the momentous events of the UAW 2022 convention, which was held at the end of July in Detroit, and good friend of Labor Express Radio Steve Zeltzer's excellent coverage of the convention, I'm devoting tonight's entire episode to Steve's interview with hometown labor movement hero, former UAW local 551 vice president and Unite All Workers for Democracy, or UAWD co-chair, Scott Holderson. So here's the rest of that interview. And another issue that's been raised is the issue of the auto workers in Mexico, Saleo Auto GM workers, and internationalism. I mean, the, your union is connected to auto workers around the world. 
GM in Korea, GM in South Africa, Ford is all over the world. And at the GM strike, the auto workers in Mexico actually took some solidarity action to support the GM workers. What has that been the effect on, on the local? And, and why weren't these uh, GM Mexican auto workers invited to the UAW convention? Well, I can't get into the minds of the uh, International Executive Board and figure out why they weren't invited. But I, I have the utmost respect for the workers that formed that, their international independent union uh, at the GM Salau plant, uh, uh, CINTA. Uh, and I may be saying it wrong. Anyway, uh, you know, Israel Cervantes, uh, he, he uh, took a stand and led a uh, slowdown at the, at the GM plant in Mexico uh, while auto workers were on strike in the, uh, in the UAW uh, against GM. You know, GM was trying to keep their profits afloat a little bit during the strike by pressing the Mexican auto workers to put out more. And, uh, you know, they, they, pushed back against that and Israel got fired for his uh, his activism in support of uh, UAW members and rather than just you know taking that as a as a defeat Israel uh, organized and uh, much like Chris Smalls in uh, Amazon organized after uh, getting fired uh, Israel used that opportunity to build an independent uh, labor union at the GM Salau plant and uh, now uh, you know they have a first contract. They they kicked out the uh, the company union there, and it may have something to do with the fact that uh, you know kicking out a company union might come in vogue uh, if uh, uh, delegates uh, and uh, rank and file workers in the UAW uh, got to know more about that. Well, under the Taft Hartley, you're not supposed to have solidarity actions. Uh, they're illegal. Uh, yet what you have had happening in the UAW for many years, decades, is these park plants have gone on strike sometimes against concession contracts, and they're supplying parts to the major auto companies, and there hasn't been any kind of solidarity action. You see that as, a, as an important tool to link up all workers in the auto industry and, and fight back against concession bargaining? Yeah, you know, frankly, Parts manufacturers, uh, the uh, workers in those plants, have an incredible amount of power. Uh, you know, they they have been uh, uh, you know told that they're less important than assembly because uh, you know they're just one little part in, in the process. But that one little part in the process can shut down the entire process. So that gives a small number of. Uh, of workers an incredible amount of leverage uh, by uh, threatening the profits, not only of their own company, but of the major uh, auto manufacturers all across the country. So, um, you know, I, I see, uh, you know, hopefully we can use that leverage to uh, try and uh, gain some uh, a foothold, uh, not only in, uh, you know, the parts manufacturing, but also, into the uh, uh, auto companies uh, that we have failed to organize uh, so far and across the, the South. Uh, you know, that's the, I think that's the strongest uh, uh, way to go about uh, organizing, uh, you know, new members is, is uh, hit them where it, where it uh, has a uh, resounding effect and echo effect. 
And there is now uh, a danger of a, of a world war. Uh, there's an effort in, uh, to surround Russia and also China. Um, GM makes more cars in China than they do in the United States. I mean, these auto companies are in big time and also other US companies in China. Um, that, that's the rise of nationalism and also fascism in this country. Was there any debate or discussion about that? Because uh, Trump uh, and the Republican Party say that they claim to represent working people. Uh, was that reflected at all in debate or discussion at the convention, what to do about the rise of racism and fascism, xenophobia, this kind of thing? Uh, frankly, there was not. Uh, and, uh, you know, there could have been, uh, but the, uh, the debates that did happen, that did take place, uh, took time. Uh, so, you know, a lot of time was spent on uh, those debates. And also on the last day of the convention, a lot of time was wasted uh, in a uh, circus of uh, nominations for uh, international trustee. You know, there, there hasn't been a contested election for international trustee in probably 50 years uh, or, or more. Uh, nobody has heard of a contested election for international trustee until uh, this convention. And uh, on the last day of the convention, I actually ran for international trustee and the administration caucus had whipped their votes and, and uh, they played this game of uh, multiple nominations for the same person. Uh, so, you know, my opponent uh, from the administration caucus side um, was, uh, you know, the rules were that you could get two nominations, have two nomination speeches. And then, then after that, anybody that tried to nominate you again would be ruled out of order. Well, there were over 60 delegates that got up and gave nomination speeches. Uh, and then at the end would, would uh, say, uh, and I nominate uh, Dana Davidson, who was, you know, the opponent, the uh, candidate for the administration caucus. And, uh, you know, that circus, uh, you know, then they'd be ruled out of order by the chair. But, you know, that circus uh, wasted a lot of time. And that was time that could have been spent on, on looking through the other resolutions that were in the, the book. We only got to one of the proposed resolutions on uh, had to do with uh, reproductive rights. But uh, we didn't we didn't get into anything about uh, war or uh, uh, racism or any of the the other uh, resolutions that were submitted, uh, in part because of the, the extended debate on other issues and in part because of the circus that uh, they made out of the nominations process that morning. Uh, and it also, uh, uh, President Curry did not give a state of the UAW speech, which is unheard of for uh, the president of the union not to give a state of the UA UAW speech at the uh, Constitutional Convention. It's the first time it's ever happened that, I, that I've heard of. And you're from Indiana, you live in Indiana. Uh, they're just trying to pass a, uh, a bill that would prevent it just uh, did pass it yeah and what what do you think about what's going on with this uh, attack on reproductive rights well it's it's uh you know it turns the clock back 40 years or more uh you know it, it's an attack on uh, uh on rights on the right to privacy uh and you know it's not likely to stop with uh, women's health issues, uh, if you can attack the right to privacy uh, and women's health, 
then you can attack the right to privacy uh, and for anything, any uh, thing that should we want to keep private, right? So, um, you know, other things that could be uh, on the chopping block are contraception. Uh, other things that could be on the chopping block are uh, the right to marry who you who you want to marry. So, uh, you know, those it's it's very troubling uh, the direction that that this country is headed, uh, we are regressing and uh, rather than uh, moving forward. So, you know, I, it, it's a control issue. And, uh, you know, I, I think it's uh, an unwise move. And the unions in Indiana, um, you say that the reproductive rights was a resolution at the convention. What are the UAW and other unions in Indiana doing uh, to fight back, educate, organize their members? Because as you said, this can expand. In fact, the Supreme Court could take away labor rights that we now have, um, say that they violate the employer's rights. So the danger is a, a whole scale attack on any kind of democratic constitutional rights. Yeah, I'm not sure what uh, unions specifically are doing. I know there are, uh, uh, there are uh, organizations and uh, just ad hoc groups that have uh, come together to uh, fight back. Uh, but you know, as long as the, the legislature is uh, in control, being controlled by a super majority of folks who want to uh, roll back the, the clock on, on these uh, issues of privacy, then, uh, you know, it's going to be an uphill battle. Uh, and, you know, I'm not sure what the what the solution is. Uh, you know, we, we like to think that, uh, you know, the ballot box is the way to approach this. But until we can get a uh, get rid of that supermajority of uh, uh, regressive-minded uh, legislature legislators and uh, and a governor who's going to sign their their legislation, then uh, you know we're going to keep uh, moving backwards instead of forwards. And so, the, for the first time, they had nomination for candidates. Your organization has nominated a candidate, a slate. Um, what does that process look like? And uh, how are the members going to be able to have hear from these candidates and have a real democratic discussion debate on a candidates for election? And when will it be? Oh, that's uh, that's a very exciting development. So, you know, there were uh, uh, five people nominated for international president. Uh, there were a couple for uh, secretary treasurer, uh, several for vice president. I, I don't know, have the number right in front of me, but uh, so now those candidates uh, have to get their name out there. Uh, now UAWD, uh, the organization that I helped found, uh, is uh, working on a, a uh, democratic endorsement process. And uh, we've endorsed three candidates so far and have uh, uh, another four candidates up for endorsement at our uh, meeting tomorrow. And um, so, you know, our slate is going to be prepared. Uh, we're, we're uh, you know, working on uh, getting uh, our slate's name out there. Um, but, you know, there's going to be also some equalizing uh, ability by uh, uh, putting candidates' campaign literature in Solidarity Magazine. And it's going to be mailed out to every UAW member. So, uh, they'll have that opportunity to uh, meet the candidates uh, you know through their campaign literature but also the uh, the monitor is uh, scheduling a forum 
Now, it's not unclear right now whether that forum is going to be only for president, uh, presidential candidates, or whether it's going to be expanded to other uh, executive board candidates. Uh, it's not clear in the rules yet, uh, but uh, that's going to be a video uh, platform uh, where you know UAW members can watch it live or it'll be saved on the monitor's website so it can be shared. And, and that's an opportunity for uh, the members to get to know their uh, candidates. And other than that, we're gonna be raising money to uh, try and uh, be able to send out uh, leaflets and, and uh, or do mailers and, and uh, uh, pass out leaflets at plant gates and things of that nature to uh, let the membership know who uh, who our candidates are. And in the past, you've used uh, social media yourself at previous conventions to videotape your presentations at the UAW convention, challenging and raising issues. And that has played a factor, obviously, in auto workers getting information about contracts and, and uh, bringing workers together to have a debate and discussion. The convention was not broadcast to the members, even though the members paid for the convention. That's something that could have happened. Uh, for members to actually see a convention. Uh, how do you see social media and, and democratic use of communication by the membership to, to increase the power and the education of the, of the union? Well, it's, it's a tool. Uh, you know, it's a, it's a tool that uh, the members should be uh, able to, to watch. But, you know, I, I can tell you from experience, uh, live streaming the entire convention is uh people are going to lose interest uh you know it, you know when you have uh you know lulls in the action so to speak uh people tend to lose interest so i, I think the best approach is is for uh guests and delegates and alternates to uh, be able to live stream uh and uh, share those videos uh on facebook uh, like i have done before uh, and uh you know that that gives an opportunity to for uh, members to take more bite-sized pieces of the uh, of the convention, uh, and uh, you know, really not lose uh, lose the attention span that a uh, you know an eight-hour-long uh, live stream would have. Uh, so, uh, one thing uh, the UAW does do is they put up the uh, speeches from politicians on their website, uh, but they don't do much. Uh, uh, broadcasting of debate that's left to uh, the delegates themselves and, and alternates. Now, on the last day of the convention, uh, there was a crackdown and uh, live streaming was not allowed. Uh, they didn't stop us from recording uh, for posting at a later date, but uh, they did come and cost people that were recording uh, saying, hey, your uh, live, live streaming's not allowed. Uh, and, uh, you know, when the sergeant at arms would come over there and you have to show them that, hey, I'm recording, I'm not live streaming. And, uh, you know, there, like I said, there was a crackdown and, and that was unfortunate. Uh, and I, I think the, the reasoning behind the crackdown was because they were planning on playing games and going back to some of their traditional methods. And they didn't want the members to see that but members are gonna learn about it. And I also understand the, the reporters there, uh, the UAW administration conference was afraid of allowing them to even be in the convention. They had them corralled in a separate room. 
Uh, I mean, they're apparently terrified. And also the WSWS uh, website is getting a lot of hits. They're worried about them. Uh, it sounds like the bureaucracy or the leadership is, is terrified of a real opening up of the union. They see that as a threat to them, their control. Uh, yeah, they, they definitely do. I, you know, but I, I do want to comment on WSWS now that you brought them up. You know, that's a, an organization that would love to tear apart the union and try and reform it and re, reframe it in, in some other uh, entity. But, you know, our whole goal is to take the union that we have and, and make it work for the workers, not to uh, dismantle it. So, you know, we, we have a, a very wide difference of opinion on uh, the approach to uh, what we do with uh, with not only the UAW, uh, WSWS detects other uh, unions as well in the same manner. And their idea was that the union is a capitalist organization. It's controlled by the capitals. It supports the Democratic Party. It supports capitalism. So workers should form these separate rank and file committees. Why are they running in the union election if they have that position? I don't understand it. <laughs> yeah, but but maybe, you know, I, I guess it's easier to dismantle uh, from the inside. You know, if the best way to rob a bank is uh, is to be the is to own it. Right. And of course, uh, I guess the UAW administration caucus would be happy if they weren't running, because actually in an election, you can actually have uh, your candidates out there. And, and you but you see hope of reforming the UAW, making it do what it should be doing. Yeah, I, I've uh, uh, I saw hope before this convention and. Uh, you know, just being able to have uh, uh, some semblance of democracy and actually get some things passed at this convention uh, get, gives me incredible hope. Uh, you know, the, the membership, I think, has an opportunity to take back their union. Uh, now it's up to them to, uh, you know, to do it. Uh, UAWD is here to help. And, uh, you know, we're trying to organize rank and file workers to, uh, to do just that. Uh, but, you know, the, the workers are going to have to step up and, and do their part uh, to make the, take back their union because this is their union. It doesn't belong to the administration caucus. It doesn't belong to the International Executive Board. This union belongs to every member of the, of the UAW. And uh, every member of the UAW has a responsibility uh, to help bring our union back from the abyss that, that we've been in. And the major growth of the UAW has been in the graduate students, as you were saying earlier, 80,000, 20% of the membership. How was that uh, growth affected and uh, their role affected at the UAW convention? Well, there were graduate student workers that were organizing with UAWD. There were graduate student workers that were uh, uh, loyal to the administration caucus. So, you know, I, I would say there were, uh, uh, that sector was balanced on, on both sides. Uh, so, uh, you know, we, we're hopeful that we can uh, continue working together and, and building a uh, rank and file movement that is gonna take back our, our union and start bringing changes to the everyday lives of UAW members that they desperately need. Uh, so, you know, it's, it's gonna take the members uh, getting involved and, and uh, helping to bring that level of, uh, uh, you know, ownership of their union back to the rank and file and, and have some shop floor militancy again.
And last, the UAW caseworkers are still on strike. They've been on strike since May. Uh, has there been a national campaign by the UAW to make sure that they're supported and there's support throughout the country uh, and internationally? And also, what do you think can be done to support these uh, caseworkers by the rank and file members? Uh, there has not been a, a national push to uh, to help them, and and uh, you know they are in a tight uh, spot. It's a difficult uh, company to negotiate with because uh, they have several plants that are non-union, uh, many more non-union plants than they than the two uh, UAW uh, uh, plants that are in operation now. So you know their their profit margin hasn't been impacted as as uh, uh, as much as you know, for instance, the the deer, the John Deere profit margins were Im impacted by their strike, uh, so that makes it a harder uh, negotiation. Uh, we need to do a better job of organizing the unorganized uh, to give more power to those workers. Uh, but you know, increasing the strike pay to four hundred uh, is going to help them sustain themselves. What we need to do is spread the word around the UAW that these this strike is going on because the UAW has done very little to uh, promote it. Uh, and, uh, uh, you know, UAWD is, has, uh, you know, been running uh, uh, some promotions of it, uh, putting up articles, newspaper articles that were locally produced. Uh, there's also uh, a GoFundMe uh, for, uh, uh, it's one of the uh, engineers that quit <laughs> when when the workers went on strike in Burlington, Iowa, at uh, local 807, uh, one of the engineers that worked for the company said, "I'm walking out with them," and then proceeded to uh, start a GoFundMe and uh, help those workers uh, sustain themselves. So you know that's going on. Uh, UAWD Mutual Aid Fund has made a donation uh, to the workers in Racine. Uh, some grocery cards to help them out, uh, but it's going to take more than that. You know, we're we're all going to have to step up, and we should be uh, you know passing the hat at union meetings and doing gate collections and things like that to to help them sustain uh, their uh, picket lines uh, in the face of uh, you know the assault on on, a, on their union. Okay, well, I want to thank you for joining us, uh, Scott. We've been talking with Scott Holderson. He's a UAW 551 member from Chicago at the Ford plant there and is co-chair of UAW Members for Democracy, talking about this last convention and issues that they face and the future struggles in the UAW. So thanks for joining us on Workweek. Yeah, thanks. Thanks for having me, Steve. And if you want to know more about uh, UAWD, go to the UAWD.org. Uh, and if you want to know more about our slate of candidates, uh, go to uawmembers.org. Uh, Thank you very much. Solidarity. Solidarity. You're listening to Labor Express Radio News for Working People by Working People. That was Steve Zeltzer of Workweek Radio interviewing former UAW Local 551 Vice President and UAWD Co-Chair Scott Holderson about the historic UAW 2022 convention. Again, I want to make sure our listeners know that an equally powerful and even more extensive 
coverage of the convention uh, and the rank and file revolt of the UAW can be heard at Workweek Radio, where Steve has posted an interview with the legendary UAW activist Frank Hammer on this same topic. It's really worth checking out, so check that out. You can find that at laborexpress.org. I have a link there at laborexpress.org. Well, that's all the time we have for tonight's episode. Labor Express is a nonprofit 501c3 member of IBEW Local 1220. Views expressed on Labor Express are those of its producers, not necessarily those of IBEW. Labor Express is a production of the Committee for Labor Access in Chicago, the world capital of the labor movement. Labor Express is a proud member of the Labor Radio and Podcast Network, working people's voices broadcasting worldwide 24 hours a day. Find out more at laborradionetwork.org. The song is our theme is called Worker Songs, written by Ed Pickford and recorded by the Dropkick Murphys. Tune in every Sunday at 8 p.m. or Monday at 11 a.m. at 105.5 FM or lumpenradio.com for more Labor Express. Yeah, this one's for the workers who turn out and For no more than your bread Have bled for your countries And counted your dead In the factories and mills In the shipyards and mines We've often been told To keep up with the times For our skills are not And the prospect